This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Welcome to another episode of Money and Markets. My name is Tom Selby from AJ Bell, and with Danny and Dan both sunning themselves this week, I'm joined by Tom Sieber from Shares and AJ Bell. Thanks, Tom. And at the risk of jinxing things, it does feel like summer might just might finally be here. We've got lots of personal finance topics to cover while you're jumping on your chalk ices. Um, We'll be discussing whether the government's flagship automatic enrolment reforms could be expanded. And we'll be asking whether investors should ever be bothered if the chairman and chief executive of a company are the same person. That's right. We've also got another question in Pensions Corner, an interview with Mark Smith from the Amati Strategic Metals Fund. And Jen, of course, is here with her latest Money Madness story. But before we get into all of that, and there's lots going on this week, let's have a quick check in on the market. So, Tom, what's caught your eye over the past week or so? Yeah, in some ways, it's been a quiet period, although it's 2021, so it's never too quiet, really. And appropriately enough, given the interview we've got coming up later, a lot of the recent action appears to have been in the commodity markets. Um, The big story here is probably the fact that oil prices are back above $70 a barrel. And some of the key drivers of that seem to be um, an upbeat assessment of demand from OPEC, which is the the sort of cartel of producers in the Middle East, and the prospects of a lot of Iranian barrels coming back on stream, waning somewhat as negotiations um, over a, a new nuclear agreement prove quite torturous. And one thing to consider is if if this oil price rally is sustained or even if it gets extended a little bit, it could add to the concerns that are kind of mounting in the market over inflation. And it's worth remembering that, in effect, a kind of rising oil price is a bit of a tax on economic growth because it increases the cost of of energy and transportation for um, businesses, which then feed through to consumers. And obviously, consumers pay more at the pump. So, um that that's that's been one sort of story that that's been um dominating the markets the other one potentially is also um related to a commodity and that's gold which recently traded above $1900 an ounce um for the first time since the beginning of the year um it had fallen quite sharply since last summer when gold hit a record level but it seemingly is is back in favour a little bit as people look to protect themselves against um, inflation, which we already mentioned, and and sort of market volatility. And while for a for a little while there, it looked like Bitcoin might be challenging gold status as as kind of a a way of protecting yourself against inflation. The recent wild price swings we've seen there um, look to have put some of the big institutions, the big investors, off Bitcoin um, after some of them had tentatively dipped their toes in the cryptocurrency waters. Um, Outside of the commodity space, the housing market remains extremely buoyant, but there are signs this is bringing with with it its own pressures in terms of the supplies of building products and raw materials. Um, A lot of people have pointed to the stamp duty holiday as a reason for the housing boom, but the latest nationwide survey suggested that around two-thirds of property purchases were going to pursue their moves regardless of what happens with the tax holiday. Um, and that suggests that there's there's other drivers for for what's going on here. And um, I don't know if this would sort of tally what, with what you guys sort of have seen or, or have heard anecdotally, but I think there's there's quite a lot of examples of people just looking for larger properties. 
Yeah, it's in, it's it's interesting, and that's why I recently ish went through went through the process of um, of buying a buying a new flat, and it was something that we we kind of were were planning to do anyway, and then that was kind of obviously accelerated a bit by coronavirus, and we were living in quite a small space, and then the stamp it was kind of the stamp duty holiday happened, and then that, that accelerated what we were doing. But it's interesting. I know a few people who who were kind of in a who seemed to be in a bit of a rush to get their property moves sorted um and and the, the the i think the feel there was certainly in the conversations i've had with people is that perhaps the stamp duty holiday wasn't the thing that made them want to do it but it's the thing that's making them want to close the deal very quickly and as a result you get these kind of mad rushes of people piling on potentially paying way over the odds for a property to get in ahead of the deadline and actually i think the danger for a lot of people is that they'll end up paying so much over the odds that the, the stamp duty reduction effect is kind of wiped out when you look at the transaction as a whole. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, another um, sort of side effect, I guess, is that some people may feel they are they're, they're kind of priced out of the market, and then if they want extra space, they're going to have to look to sort of extend their existing property. And one of the things we've seen, even sort of just just very recently, is um, Wix Group, which is a DIY chain that people might be familiar with and recently to merge from a builder's merchant called Travis Perkins. Both of these companies <clears throat> have flagged um, rising raw material costs and rising costs of building products. And I guess if, if we've got this kind of home renovation boom going on, that there is a chance that gets derailed if the kind of the costs become so prohibitive or um, because things aren't available, things get delayed, and they could, you know, could be stopped in its tracks. And, and a sort of final point on, on that as well is that it's probably going to be worth looking out for rising costs and cost inflation when the house builders next update the market. And Persimmon is the next sort of big name due, due to um, report, and that's in early July. So I think there'll be quite a lot of focus on that then. So that that's the markets. Automatic enrolment reforms have massively boosted the number of people saving something in a pension. But there has been some debate about, about whether people should be able to choose their workplace pension scheme. Tom, can you explain why people are talking about this now? Yeah, so this is um, quite an quite an interesting one. So as, as you say, automatic enrolment has been a big retirement policy success that's actually generally had consensus across different political parties. So quite a rare thing um, in, in modern times. So you've got 10 million more people saving something for retirement, albeit with, I think, too many people probably currently contributing at the bare minimum of 8% of, of band earnings. For most people, that's probably not going to deliver the retirement income that they'll be hoping for when they get to their later years. So the question I think that we've reached now is, what next? So tackling this issue of pensions adequacy, so this 8% is not enough question, remains the long-term challenge. But I'm not sure if there's appetite at the moment for the government to deal with that head-on, because you might be talking about increasing employer and employee contributions. Obviously, you've got lots of employers and lots of workers who might be struggling at the moment on the back of the pandemic, who perhaps wouldn't thank the government for increasing their their business costs when they're just looking to open up as society opens up. So the DWP, the Department of Work and Pensions, has published a consultation looking at various things related to automatic enrolment. But one of the ideas that they're looking to explore is the idea of allowing people potentially to choose their workplace 
pension scheme. So at the moment, it's your employer who chooses a qualifying workplace pension scheme where your employer and your employee automatic enrollment pension contributions go to. And you as an employee don't have any say in where that money goes. So the government is quite tentatively uh, exploring this consultation document, the idea of allowing you potentially to choose a different pension scheme to the one that your employer's chosen. Now, not the most scientific way to to test um, sentiment for something, but I did a Twitter poll to see what mm-hmm. people thought about this. So I got 161 respondents, which I was quite surprised at. Yeah, that's not bad. That's a decent level of engagement. Lots of people interested, although I'm not sure my Twitter following are necessarily nationally representative. <laughs> I think there's quite a lot of financial advisors and pensions nerds in there. Nonetheless, 161 response, respondents, 50% in favour, 39% said they were against, and 11% weren't sure. So it's dividing opinion amongst people. Um, not surprising, really, because when I when I thought about this, something we thought about a few times before, actually, there's there's some pretty obvious pros and cons, I think, to a reform of this nature. So if we start with the the pros, um, there is there are issues around the level of competition in the automatic enrolment market. As I mentioned, it's up to your employer to choose a workplace pension scheme on the employee's behalf. So the employee has no uh, engagement in that buying decision. Now, the Office of Fair Trading produced a report back in 2013, which concluded the buyer side of the defined contribution workplace pensions market, so the workplace pensions market we're talking about, was one of the weakest the body had analysed. And that's because the employee has no role in picking the retirement product that they save in. Now, the government subsequently introduced a charge cap for for default funds for automatic enrolment to bring an element of protection in there. But you could see that if employees were allowed to choose where their workplace pension went, then that would add an extra element of competition into the market, which might potentially push providers to improve, improve their service and lower their fees. You could also potentially see members benefiting from lower fees, better service and less admin faff when they switch jobs if they're able to keep their pension employer contributions going into the same pension scheme rather than having to move into the pension scheme that's chosen by their employer. So a few reasons why it might work. However, I suspect for the government, some of the reasons why it won't be a goer may end up winning the day here. So I talked about extra faff there for employees in terms of transferring their pension over. Of course, one of the big considerations for the government at the moment is FAF for employers. So if you're going to create something where someone can potentially have their pensions paid into any different type of scheme, then the government would have to explain and come up with a way to ensure that could be done without adding any extra administration to employers. I think anything that adds extra cost, extra burden to employers is simply going to be a no-go. I spoke to um, Neil Carberry, who's an employment guru, uh, formerly of the CBI and now at the Recruitment and Employment Confederation. He said most companies would be dead against bringing choice into auto enrollment because partly because there'd be too many moving parts and the extra cost, and also because it raises the risk of getting things wrong because you've got different pension schemes where your money may be paid to. So I think it's one of those things that's going in the interesting idea box at the moment. I think for a a subsection of people who are automatically enrolled into a workplace pension scheme, it would be attractive for all the reasons that I mentioned. So extra choice and, and also making things a little bit easier from an admin perspective. But until 
someone can come up with a way to make this easy for employers to administrate, I think it's something that we're not going to see at least for a good few years yet. Do you think as well that the you know, there might not be huge appetite for it because a lot of people just wouldn't engage with their kind of retirement savings. I mean, they should, but mm. obviously a lot of people maybe don't engage with their retirement savings to that level. Exactly. Yeah. So I think I think in a in a way that's a that's a blessing a blessing and a curse in terms of this reform idea because a lot of the concerns around it would be perhaps that people might uh, choose a pension scheme and make bad decisions and end up with a scheme that pay, has higher costs or worse investment performance or, or the rest of it. But I suspect what you would have is the vast majority of people, because inertia is such a powerful thing, the vast majority of people would stay exactly where they are in their existing workplace pension scheme. They'd just stay, in, stay within the default fund. And I think what you would probably have is just a small portion, maybe 5-10% of the members, something like that, who would use that extra, extra flexibility to move their pension into a fund of their choosing into investments of their choosing that perhaps better fit their appetite to risk or their personal choices and all the rest of it. So it would be an interesting one to see if it happens. I think if the government were going to do it, they'd have to really carefully road test it to make sure there weren't going to be any big negative behavioural impacts. But I think what we've seen from automatic enrolment actually today over the past eight, nine years is that the power of inertia is incredibly strong. And while something like this might impact at the edges in terms of people's engagement it's unlikely to result in everybody choosing different pension schemes to the one their employer chooses because i think the reality is most people have got better things to do than spend lots of time managing their pensions on a day-to-day basis reports hastily rubbish by the company that jd sports executive chairman peter cowgill might be about to step down have helped revive a debate about the importance of keeping the chief executive and chairman roles separate. So, Tom, can you give us a background as to what's been going on here? Yes. So thanks for that, Tom. Recent newspaper reports suggested that the executive chairman, and executive is probably the key word here, of JD Sports, Peter Galgill, might be about to step down. And what they were attributing that to was some discomfort amongst shareholders over the fact that he has a dual role. Essentially, he fulfills the the role of chairman and chief executive. Um, The company, which, you know, sells fashionable trainers and, and, and the like, um, very quickly dismissed this speculation. And what was quite interesting, though, is it didn't really, they didn't really address this key point about the management structure and the lack of separation between the CEO and chairman positions. It's not that uncommon for the chairman and CEO roles, CEO roles to be combined, particularly for smaller companies. But given JD Sports is is a proper kind of big blue chip company, it, it does make it more of an outlier. And the reason why this kind of setup rings alarm bells with some investors and is seen as being kind of poor practice in terms of, of corporate governance is that really the chairman and the CEO should be performing very different functions. So broadly, the chairman's responsible for leading the board, maintaining good communication with shareholders. And the chief executive has the day job, basically. They're, they're tasked with running the business. Um, and it, you know, you can see why it could be important for you to have kind of a strong independent chairman to essentially keep the CEO in check. I mean, there have been examples of kind of overpowerful chief executives in the past. So, I mean, a very, you know, obvious one um, would be what happened at 
Royal Bank of Scotland with Fred Goodwin, and that didn't end very well. So, you know, ha- having an independent chairman, a strong chairman to hold them accountable for their decisions is is important. And it's also, you know, without having that separation, it's easy to see how there could be conflicts of interest over areas like pay and performance. Um, so that that's kind of why people would, you know, potentially be critical of, of this kind of setup. That said, since Cowgill started doing both roles in 2014, JD's own performance from an operational and share price point of view has given shareholders very little cause for complaint. So the shares are up more than tenfold and the profit is increased more than 600%. So for as long as, you know, it's continuing to deliver on, on that kind of level, the, the kind of pressure on, on JD Sports to make a change here is unlikely to be too severe, I'd imagine. Yeah, interesting. So, I mean, is it one of those sets of circumstances where if the if the results had been different for the company, then potentially we'd be having a slightly different conversation here in terms of the split of the roles? I think, I, think, I mean, it, you, you never know. And, it, they, you know, they, it may be that they come under pressure on, on this issue just because investors are kind of inherently uncomfortable with it. But it certainly probably gives them a bit more breathing space that... You know, it's been one of the best performing, you know, stocks probably in in the UK market over the last decade decade or so. So, um, that that certainly kind of yeah buys them a bit of time, I think. And if if you're an, if you're an investor, if you're an investor and you're you're considering investing in a company which has the same person as chief executive and, and, and chairman, what would what would you say to someone in that position? Is it is it is it the case that that's just something that you should bearing mind when you're deciding whether or not to invest in that company and obviously you should also look at the, the fundamentals and the cash flow and and all the rest of it or, or do you think there'll be some people for whom that structure simply wouldn't fly and they'd, they'd look at that and say that's not going to be an acceptable investment for me because I just fundamentally believe good corporate governance requires those two roles to be separate yeah it's an interesting question I mean I think it would it would just it would depend on the individual which is a very sort of fence city way of approaching <laughs> that. But I think as well, you, you, you'd probably want to investigate it a bit more if that was the case and look at, you know, perhaps how the company had been led, what the sort of track record had been like under, under the, you know, if, if there was, an, you know, a person who did have dual responsibility mm. in that way, you know, what, what they'd done at the company. And that would maybe help kind of inform your decision a bit. But yeah, it's certainly something that would probably warrant a bit more investigation. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't fancy doing it. One one job's more than enough for me, frankly. Taking on two very different jobs sounds, uh, sounds a little bit too much like hard work. It's been some time, but Pensions Corner is back. Um, and this week's question is from Jack, who's hoping for some plain English help on recycling a tax-free lump sum into a SIP. Um, he'd like to access his local government pension scheme, defined ben- benefit pension at age 55 and take his 25% tax-free lump mm. sum. And he plans to slit list between his stocks and shares ISA and a SIP. But he wants to know if significantly increasing his regular pension contributions from his salary and compensating for that loss by drawing down from the increased ISA would be classed as recycling. Uh, so yeah, over to you, Tom. Hopefully, you can unpick all of that. Yeah, quite a, quite a lot going on there. Um, pension tax free cash recycling, an, an interesting one. And interestingly, one of the things that I get asked about the most through my column now, I don't necessarily think that's uh, a bad thing because there are it, you were, it, it's it's people looking to take advantage of the tax rules in a in a legal way to get the biggest bang for their buck, which of course is something that we're all doing when we're when we're saving and investing for retirement. So. HMRC has rules which are designed to ensure people don't excessively recycle their 
25% tax-free lump sum back into a pension. So these measures are in place, understandably, to protect the taxpayer and the Chancellor of the Exchequer. So without them, people would be free to just keep on taking their pensions tax-free cash out, putting it back into a pension, generating extra tax relief and an extra tax-free cash entitlement on top of it. So you can understand why from the revenues point of point of view, there's a there's a need to ensure that people aren't doing this to an assess an excessive degree. Now, there are quite specific conditions which need to be met for HMRC to consider that tax-free cash recycling has taken place. It's probably easiest to ask yourself a series of questions to determine whether or not you might be at risk of breaching those conditions. So I'll set those out now. I think it's probably the easiest way to do it. So Uh, Have you received or are you planning to take a tax-free lump sum from your pension? So that'd be question one. Question two, is the amount of tax-free cash received over 12 months from all your pension plans more than £7,500? Three, as a result of receiving the tax-free lump sum or sums, have pension contributions increased by more than 30% of what what might have been expected? And I'll come come back to that point three because that's quite a specific condition within the conditions. Point four, Are the extra pension contributions more than 30% of the tax-free lump sum or sums received? And five, is the recycling pre-planned? Now, if the answer to all of those questions is yes, then HMRC is likely to deem that pension tax-free cash has been recycled and the lump sum will be treated as an unauthorised payment. So that means the payment will be subject to a charge of at least 55% and they're also maybe a 15% scheme sanction charge, which takes the total hit to a fairly eye-watering 70%. So you need to be really careful if you're doing something which you think might look like pension tax free cash recycling because the penalties are, are pretty severe. Now, just on point three there, uh, while an increase in pension contributions by more than 30% of what might have been expected might sound a little bit vague, it's actually quite a specific condition within the rules. So HMRC We'll look at pension contributions made in the rest of the tax year after you took your tax-free cash, plus up to two more years afterwards to see if this is in line with your normal behaviour or if something different has happened at the point that you received your pension's tax-free cash. That's then compared with the contributions made during a similar period before tax-free cash was taken, so you can see whether or not there's been a big change in what somebody's been doing around the point at which they've taken their tax-free cash. Now, you can't get around this by paying the tax-free cash into a different pension scheme. As HMRC will look at all of your contributions when making its assessment of whether or not recycling has taken place. HMRC won't consider what you do in relation to other products such as ISAs when deciding whether pensions recycling has occurred. So this will just be in relation to the contributions that you make to registered UK pension schemes. Now, with things like this, there are, there are clearly, clearly the right side of the rules and the wrong side of the rules. And you need to make sure you stay on the right side of the rules. I'd say to make sure you to, you stay the right side of HMRC's rule, the easiest thing is to make sure you can answer no to at least one of those five, those five questions I mentioned earlier on in my response to this. And if you can't or you have any uncertainty whatsoever, then stay on the safe side and don't risk it because the penalty for doing it is really severe and it'd really hit you in the pocket yeah it sounds like one of those situations yeah if, if in doubt you you know you definitely shouldn't risk it 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, in fact, in fact, Tom, we should have got you to answer the question because that was, would have been a much, much more concise way <laughs> of dealing with a complicated. No, no, I think problem. it was good to get the detail. Though. Hopefully, I some hope. of hopefully some of the rules there will be helpful to people. Yeah. And now we shift from recycling to mining for this week's big interview. Dan recently caught up with Mark Smith of the Amati Strategic Metals Fund to talk about the mining sector and the outlook for certain metals. Let's listen to the interview right now. So commodity prices have been going crazy this year, including a big surge in the price of copper and iron ore. So I'm pleased to welcome Mark Smith to the podcast to talk about this topic. So Mark is the joint manager of the recently launched Amati Strategic Metals Fund. And I'm sure, Mark, you've been down a mine or 10 in your career. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, I, I started my uh, career as a as a geologist in um, exploration in uh, West Africa, and um, then moved around to to East Africa before coming back to to London and uh, doing eighteen years of uh, mining investments uh, around the world. So uh, you, you're quite right. Been I've got dirty down to quite a few uh, mines in my time. <laughs> So fantastic! So you, you you should be well qualified to answer the question that everyone is asking: is you know, are we in a new super cycle for commodities? Yes, it, it's, it's such a hot topic at the moment, and uh, everyone's uh, talking about uh, this uh, upcoming super cycle driven by the green wave from um, decarbonisation of the planet and electrification and and. Uh, the quest for renewable energy, and um, it was quite timely when we we launched the Amati Strategic Metals Fund because um, up until the launch in in March this year, we we ran a dummy fund and uh, we had a lot of uh, base metal and copper names in the portfolio. By the time we came to launch the fund, those those uh, those stocks, those investments had run so hard that we couldn't include them in in the fund because. Uh, we're value guys, and um, we then had to uh, uh, not include the copper stocks in the fund, and uh, that was on the backdrop of um, this super cycle that the markets got got wind of. And uh, in reality, um, I think the markets ahead of of the actual supply demand fundamentals in the metal markets at the moment. And uh, if you look at the projections out to twenty thirty, is quite common in in, in literature. And by other um, commentators on the, on the sector, they see a supply deficit, um, and uh, in reality, that, that's probably true. But I don't think it's to the same degree as as what the commodity prices are telling us on the screen at the moment. And if we use copper as an example, um, the real incentivized copper price is probably around about uh, three dollars twenty five, maybe three dollars forty. Certainly not four dollars fifty that we're seeing on the screen at the moment. And uh, what's happened is is we've had this this thematic come through for investors saying, okay, there's this green wave and um, the market and the, the globe will be short of, of strategic metals needed. Um, and at the same time, you've had a lot of um, money liquidity in the markets looking for an investment home, and uh, the two have really come together and created this this. Uh, bit of a bubble that we see in the in the copper space at the moment but it's true we will see a a a strong call it super cycle i'm a bit reticent to use that term but um reality is is that 
if we look out to 2030 and beyond, there won't be enough supply of metal to meet demand. And uh, that um, super cycle uh, will be created if the um, the supply gap from uh, elasticity of supply doesn't meet demand. And uh, the principle here is it, it takes five to 10 years to put a mine into production. So your super cycle, if you want to use that term, has a duration of maybe five to 10 years until supply meets demand and that these mines are put into production. Yeah, I mean, there seems to be some suggestion that, um, you know, these prices can't keep going up and up indefinitely. So while there's there's a sort of a narrative in favour of metals like copper, do you think there's a possibility that we're kind of at the top in terms of prices at the moment, we could get a bit of a correction before going back up again in the sort of media term? Yeah, I think we'll get a bit of a correction, um, certainly in the in the copper market, and um, we're starting to see this at the moment. And the the the, the uh, aggressive price rally in copper has created an inflationary environment in China, and uh, we're actively seeing now the Chinese government trying to manage the iron as well, iron ore as you mentioned, and copper to limit price spikes in these metals because they have a detrimental effect on. On, on the way that uh, the government is trying to, to build our infrastructure and uh, it creates an inflationary environment, which obviously they're trying to manage. So the way that they can do this is by encouraging recycling in, in, in the country domestically. Um, they, they, the Chinese sit on a strategic uh, stockpile of copper, which are they, they could return to the market really to, to bring the copper price back down into more uh, manageable levels and uh, create inflation. So we see a correction coming. Um, and reality is that the, the, the price spike in the metal is being driven by um, investment fund managers, uh, money managers looking to invest money. And um, when you've got the, the framework of, of, of global inflation coming through, um, copper is one of a suite of metals, which um, is a good way to play that inflationary trade. But at the same time, Investors are playing this green theme as well, so it's a good way to do it. But we'd rather step aside, wait for a correction. And reality is, we've got a balanced market in the copper space. Supply is meeting demand, but the the, the metal price you see on the screen is telling you something else, and that's really been manipulated by um, inventory uh, investment and moving inventories around the world to to create shortages in in certain uh, exchanges. Yeah. So what, uh, mining companies seem to have a bit of a history of making mistakes when commodity prices are high. Um, you know, they, they have a history of overpaying for acquisitions and sort of taking their eye off costs. You know, I've heard some comment that it, it's different this time because miners can remember the pain they went through in the last commodities downturn and they're not going to repeat those mistakes. But, you know, it's never really different this time, is it? Um, it is slightly um, because, uh, as you said, the miners uh, were were goaded by the investor back in 2011 and 12 and, and even in the previous cycle in the early 2000s, where the investor wanted growth at all cost and were prepared to pay above market value for a company that was just growing by acquisition or uh, putting mines into production, which really shouldn't have been. And what happened is when the commodity prices corrected, uh, these companies were faced with crippling debt on the balance sheet um, and the mines couldn't make a profit. 
so they couldn't service the debt. Now what we're seeing is is actually a, a bit of a perfect storm. Is is we've got this future demand for metals coming through, and that the industry has been so scared to expand that they haven't been putting uh, capital to work either through exploration or development. And now the investor is saying, okay, don't expand your production. Don't put that money back into the ground. Pay us a dividend. We want a dividend. But the problem with that model is the industry is X growth. Uh, if we even if you look at the precious metal side or the base metal side, um, within 10 years, uh, most of these sectors will be have declining production profiles globally and declining reserve base. So the only way to to um, rectify that is to actually build more mines. So it's, it, it's a strange uh, paradox where the investor wants a dividend and a return now because they've obviously had five or ten years of pain, but the companies that they're investing in are becoming ex-growth companies and their production profiles and then their cash flow will decline in the next five or ten years. So it's a strange scenario that we're in at the moment. Yeah. Has there actually been any sort of big exploration discoveries in the past 10 years or or, or the miners sort of perhaps focused on looking at you know, restarting older mines now that you know, higher commodity prices might make these projects economical? Yeah, um, I was looking at this the other day and um, the the major discoveries uh, happened 10, 20 years ago. And uh, to give you an example, um, the global exploration expenditure in, in 2012 was about $21 billion. Currently, we're sitting at $8 billion. And we just haven't had the investment to look for new discoveries. Um the problem is, is these deposits are, are getting harder to find because they're in more challenging jurisdictions geopolitically. So um, I wouldn't say we've had world-class discoveries by any means. We've certainly had two or three um, uh, important discoveries in Australia, British Columbia, in, in, uh, in Canada, and uh, in Latin America. Um, but these are isolated uh, deposits, which are, are large, but they're not what's called... Um, uh, uh, mineral camps, so that they're not uh, large uh, deposits which could meaningfully influence supply of metal in, in the market. So the reason is the industry hasn't put money to work for exploration and development. Okay, so what? Just finally, what what do you think the biggest mistakes investors make when they're when they're picking mining stocks? I'd, yeah. I'd say that the, the biggest mistake is the, the fear of missing out. And um, uh, once these uh, investments in these metal markets uh, start to take off, they generally um, overreach on the upside um, and overcorrect on the downside. And uh, because uh, there is that um, euphoria of discovery and excitement, uh, generally the, the exploration stocks will will uh, price in more than they've actually discovered because the market wants to, to join in on this these investments. Um, and that's the, the, the biggest mistake people get is you need discipline. You need to be patient in the markets because they're so cyclical. And um, to, to use an, a, an example, um, when we launched this strategic metals fund, um, 
we didn't put copper stocks in in the fund because we see a correction coming and uh, it's hard to do nothing but um the easiest thing is to, to chase the trend but that trend can correct very quickly um so that's the biggest mistake is not doing your homework and uh, and, and not being patient and uh, the markets always give you a second chance and uh, you you just have to be methodical in the way that you invest and uh, because of the cyclicity of the the metal markets they'll always come back well brilliant mark smith the co-manager of the amati strategic metals fund thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast thank you and now last but never ever least jenny owen is here with another money story jenny this week you're looking at how the kindness of strangers can help bolster your bank balance now jen i know you love a chat. You're one of the chattiest people around the office. So I suspect this is right up your street. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and actually, we do get on quite well with our, our neighbours, um, which is hear. what this story is um, all about. <laughs> um, so over half the UK's population has taken in deliveries for neighbours. And a survey by Halifax has suggested that getting on well with those who live down the road from you saves an average of £165 a year. The most common acts of kindness are collecting food shopping, watering plants and pet sitting. The good deeds with the highest cash benefits were looking after kids, which saves £313 annually, and helping out with cleaning and pets, which both kept around 250 quid a year on average in your wallet. Um, typically, those who receive neighbourly help get 10 hours of support a month, and this increased to 12 hours at the start of the pandemic. Um, but it's not all a money-saving operation, though. A quarter of those surveyed said their relationship with their neighbours improved in the last year, and a third would have found it tougher to cope with the pandemic without their neighbours. A strong sense of community from chatting over the fence was highest in those aged 18 to 34, with a quarter of this age group making new friends in the local community this year. So next time you sign for another parcel for your neighbour, your piggy bank will thank you in the long run. The idea of uh, chatting over, over a fence to a neighbour in, uh, in East London is <laughs> a, slightly, a slightly far-flung dream. There's no, there's no fence oh, yeah. and, and people never talk to each other. Well, we actually had almost like a, a money draining operation with our neighbours where we went wine tasting. So oh, wow. uh, that, that all the money we'd saved, all gone. <laughs> I had the theme tune to a certain Australian soap play in my head as you talked to <laughs> <laughs> That's all from us this week. Dan and Danny will be back as usual next week. We hope you enjoyed the show and see you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. <laughs>